WFMU and the Free Music Archive, this is the Gray Area Podcast, an excerpt of my weekly WFMU radio program called Talks Cheap, uh, where we play music from freemusicarchive.org. And uh, we've got a special program for you today. We're going to be talking about the new copyright alert system and the center of copyright information. Sounds kind of Orwellian, doesn't doesn't it? Uh, But we're going to learn a lot more about it in just moments uh, when we're joined by Casey Ray Hunter from the Future of Music Coalition and Sherwin Tsai from Public Knowledge. First, I want to get into some music, and you can check the playlist up at wfmu.org slash playlists slash GA.
listening to WFMU, the radio show Talks Cheap. I also do a podcast called The Gray Area Podcast up at WFMU.org slash playlist slash GA with music from the Free Music Archive, like uh, those three songs we just heard, and often discussion about uh, issues that affect all of us, like this new copyright alert system, the Center for Copyright Information. So uh, joining in just a couple moments will be Sherwin from Public Knowledge, Sherwin Tsai, and Casey Ray Hunter from uh, the Future Music Coalition to help uh, explain how this is going to affect us all, this new agreement between the entertainment industries and the internet service providers, the people who control our access to this thing, the internet, through which many of you are listening right now to the sounds of Lucky Dragons in the background with Power Melody. White Life before that. New group from Baltimore. They've got this new LP and CD and free download from the East Records. E-H... Er, sorry. E-H-S-E. It's a project of John Aaron's and Friends. Uh... This related also to the group Y Oak. You can download that from freemusicarchive.org. As well, we heard the song Stop This From The Start, Lucky Dragons Before That, just like what we're hearing in the background. The song Givers off of Dream Island Laughing Language. Lucky Dragons puts up so much of his music under Creative Commons. We don't host all of it, but we do host a lot up at the Free Music Archive. And, uh, Includes a few track from Dream Island, Laughing Language, great album released by Marriage Records. And Cooper Moore started off that short set with Banjo Arba Minch Garden, recorded in Arba Minch during the 2008 1000 Stars Festival, where something like 50 different tribes from all over Ethiopia converge on the town of Arba Minch to uh, basically celebrate celebrate music just like uh, what we're doing here on WFMU East Orange WMFU Mount Hope Worldwide on the World Wide Web at WFMU.org let's go ahead and get into this interview back with you in just a moment On July 7th, America's major internet service providers, uh, music and film industry forces announced an agreement to cooperate on anti-piracy measures. They will establish a center for copyright information to monitor peer-to-peer networks and send out copyright alerts. The escalating alert levels start out as sort of educational warnings, but the mitigation measures 
could include bandwidth throttling and uh, possibly even the disruption of internet access. So this can have some pretty serious impact. A lot of it's left vague. And joining me are two of the most positive forces in Washington, D.C. We've got Casey Ray Hunter on the line. Casey, if you want to say hello. Hey, how's it going? From, uh, from the Future of Music Coalition, a nonprofit working to ensure a diverse musical culture where artists flourish, are compensated fairly for their work, and where fans can find the music that they want. Um, Future Music Coalition issued a statement on the copyright alert system, and then we also have Sherwin Sy, Deputy Legal Director and Kale Austin Promise Fellow at Public Knowledge, a public interest group working to defend your rights in the emerging digital culture, who uh, has issued a statement, joint statement actually, along with the Center for Democracy and Technology, and then Sherwin uh, posted a great summary which will also be linked from the playlist page here at WFMU.org. So Sherwin, if, did, did I kind of get the major points right here? Yep, that does it. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Thank, thank you both so much for, for joining. What is this idea of a center for center of copyright information? Like, that sounds kind of or- Orwellian. I mean, how, how does this center of copyright information know uh, what types of information people are trading on peer-to-peer networks? Right. Uh, so the idea behind it, I think, is that uh, basically the rights holders, the MPAA and RIAA, uh, hire people, and they go out onto peer-to-peer websites, and they start looking for stuff, and they start looking to download files. When they get a file, uh, they log the IP address of, of who uploaded it, and then they send that to the ISPs. Uh, and the ISPs separately, uh, so as not to disclose the information directly uh, yet, uh, will try and figure out from their records who was assigned that IP address at any given time and send the warning on to them. So the Center for Copyright Information does a couple of different things. One of them is sort of coordinating that, that information exchange between uh, the copyright uh, holders and the ISPs. And the other thing uh, that it's aiming to do, it seems, is to, to be sort of a, a center for information, an, an educational center, uh, I think both in terms of showing uh, what you know some of the alternatives to to uh, unlawful file sharing, but also uh, maybe trying to push a little bit of the uh, you know file sharing is bad uh, message out there. Right. So there's like the possibility that that maybe the the third time that you get one of these notices, you'll land on a on a page of kind of just friendly information about copyright and. That's what I would hope. I mean, I, I'm, you know, that's, that's one, of the, one of the questions that I think remains to be seen and that we want to keep, keep an eye out for is, is how friendly and how accurate and how useful that information you know, is going to be. Uh, we want to make sure that it doesn't just become uh, another arm of, of, uh, of industry uh, PR. Hmm. You know, I think this thing uh, falls short of the copyright re-education camps that, you know, folks um, might be scared uh, <laughs> will come to pass when, uh, you know, private industry is in cahoots with each other on issues of IP. Um, but to some degree, it's sort of like busting up a keg party the next morning instead of when the party's actually happening. A lot of the infringement isn't even taking place in the traditional peer-to-peer sharing environment. So this policy, uh, you know, even though it's not as bad as it could be, and there may be some still some slippery slope elements to it, it would have been just purely more effective, say, seven or eight years ago. But you can also see why the ISPs didn't go for it until now, um, because they 
frankly don't want to lose customers. You have at this stage in the game what appears to be uh, an environment where you know they're concerned about bandwidth and usage, and they want to be able to charge you more for usage. And also, they're getting pressure from not just you know the big content groups like the major labels and the major motion picture studios, but there appears to be willingness um, uh, you know in the United States government to uh, nudge folks towards these types of private marketplace agreements. Casey, you know you, you brought up a really interesting point that you know what why is it in the ISPs? interest to go for this and I was I was thinking about it and uh, one of one of the issues is you know let's say that my roommate and I share a Wi-Fi connection my roommate uh, downloaded some some film this this actually did happen he, and, and we got a letter this this was before this agreement yep. was even in place yep. um, got a letter saying like we know that this was downloaded from your IP address and it's just a we're just letting you know um, but so so then uh, it's it's almost like encouraging me to then get my own Wi-Fi connection instead of sharing it, and cer- certainly discouraging people from opening up their their Wi-Fi connections. Yes, and I think that that part of the the education aspect is, as far as I um, remember, it's been a few days since I plowed through the entire thirty-five page agreement. But I think there is something to address, uh, you know, network security. Like, you know, here's a primer on how to you know password protect your your uh, internet. Um, but, you know, some aspects of the agreement are already in keeping with what a lot of ISPs do independently or at least have the authority to do. Um, you know, in some ways it looks like a get-off-our-backs agreement, which could be why the, you know, reaction from even folks who would be, you know, harsh critics of this kind of thing has been fairly muted. Um, you know, if you don't have to like the policy to recognize that it's not as bad as it could been, could have been, which I think Sherwin pointed out. Uh, for us at Future of Music, you know, we're, we're um, more focused on what can be done to help artists make a living in the environment that we actually live in, the really real world. Um, it would be fantastic if the big industry players were to embrace, say, innovation in this digital marketplace as much of enforcement. Um, but, you know, the best we can do is kind of look at this thing objectively, point out where it could be flawed, and keep an eye out for slippery slopes. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think Casey's right in terms of pointing out some of the reasons that the ISPs might, might have agreed to this. You know, one of them is, and as you pointed out, you know, Jason, the, the, the bandwidth issue is something that they're themselves concerned about. I mean, obviously they're going to build into the agreement things that look out for their interests as much as they can as well. Uh, one of those is they, they themselves don't, I'm sure, like people, multiple users, uh, you know, uh, aren't members of the same household, aren't members of the same family, uh, running off the same account. Uh, and at the same time, it's certainly in their interest to, to have uh, something they can point to or some structure that they can rely upon instead of uh, constantly trying to lawyer up uh, against litigation. I think the, uh, the content industry certainly has been, uh, at least the, the major labels, have been litigious enough so far that they're willing to stretch uh, existing law uh, to, to pressure uh, changes in behavior. And I think this takes some of that pressure off of the ISPs, at least with regards to P2P. Hmm. Um, I think, it, you know, it's, it's important to point out here that this isn't just, uh, my understanding is this, it's not just the RIAA representing the music industry, Recording Industry Association of America, but also uh, the A2IM, which is a bunch of independent labels. I mean, late labels that we, we totally love here at WFMU. So what, what is going to happen when, you know, like the catalogs of like the Dominoes and Smithsonian Folkways these labels who are part of A2IM, and then, of 
course, the four major labels, the RIAA, uh, all of their uh, catalogs are part of this Center for Copyright Information. But then uh, smaller independent labels, uh, you know, maybe the majority of stuff that we play on, F- on WFMU isn't. Are those labels then, and those artists going to be able to reach more people through peer-to-peer networks? You know, you bring up a, f- a fascinating point. And, you know, ages ago, uh, Future Music did a survey of musicians to just gauge their feelings about stuff like peer-to-peer, and this was back in 2003. And a lot of folks didn't like the results because what it proved was that musicians aren't a monolithic group. And I think that you could probably say that music entrepreneurs aren't, aren't a uh, monolithic group either, and this includes labels. Um, to us, you know, it's just kind of like it's too early to tell whether these policies are going to have any measurable effect at all. Um, and as long as it doesn't do anything particularly heinous, I suppose, you know, that's fine. We can test it out. Um, what you're talking about is a competitive disadvantage or maybe even an advantage, depending on, you know, the, the, the perspective of, of the content provider. And this could be labels that are not part of A2IM. And I've got to tell you, like, we collaborate with A2IM on a lot of stuff and agree with them on a lot of issues, like the net neutrality issue and access for independence to radio and stuff like that. Um, you know, it, we, we feel for the fact that it's difficult to maintain, you know, aspects of a traditional business model in this new environment. But honestly, um, you know, to us, it's, it's, uh, it's more about what we can do to actually, uh, you know, make a legitimate digital music m- marketplace viable as an alternative to piracy. Yeah, and I think it's important to point out that uh, the agreement, if it is implemented the way, it, uh, the way it's laid out in these documents, it doesn't shut down P2P, and it doesn't declare P2P illegal or, or, or knock P2P file sharing off of networks. Uh, it's targeting uh, specific, uh, specific files that, that would be blacklisted because they haven't been cleared for distribution right. on P2P because the, the copyright holders, the artists or whoever now owns the copyright, um, doesn't want them to be put out through those, uh, through those channels. And nothing stops anyone, an independent or otherwise, uh, from doing from doing exactly that and taking advantage of those new channels as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very interested in that. You know, working with uh, the Free Music Archive here at WFMU, where uh, we're kind of gathering a curated window into the Creative Commons music world. Artists who feel that there are advantages to peer to peer, you know, music blogging. Some of these can be great uh, channels to reach new ears. I'd be curious to get maybe both of your perspectives on on whether. Uh, you know, peer-to-peer can help an artist's career? Well, you know, to to, to answer the question, and and this is a partial answer because we don't know all of the answers to all of the riddles in this this environment because it's, you know, it's kind of unprecedented. Ten years into the digital disruption, and we're still looking for viable business models that um, will work for uh, more folks than fewer folks. Uh, And, you know, the the fact of the matter is it still might take a little while for us to get there, and that's why we're trying to find a balance between, uh, you know, what would protect the possibility of innovations that musicians could benefit from in a digital environment versus, you know, that impulse, um, you know, that some of the bigger industry players have to lock down the marketplace to preserve, you know, their their traditional control over distribution. Um, that's a tension. Uh, currently, we're actually trying to, cr- you know, uh, crack that riddle from a from an interesting um, and data centric. Uh, vantage point. Uh, we have an artist revenue streams a survey um, that is uh, going live on the internet in September, and it's, um, it's, uh, it, this also includes work that we've previously done in, in examining case studies to try to see exactly how musicians' revenue streams have changed over the years, because right now we're basing a lot of this stuff on assumptions. Piracy is bad, you know, it's like the old 
Saturday Night Live skit with like Frankenstein, the Wolfman, and, and Tonto. You know, piracy bad, <laughs> and the industry has been saying that loud and clear, and it's probably true for a lot of folks, uh, but it doesn't tell us the full picture. Um, you know, these days there's a heck of a lot of avenues that musicians have online to reach audiences directly and and try out some of these new business models, and we're seeing a lot of entrepreneurial uh, entrepreneurialism. Whew, that's a mouthful. I can never say that. Um, and but we don't have a lot of hard and fast data on this stuff. So we're trying to take a snapshot of, of a still evolving picture for musicians and you know music entrepreneurs and see if we can actually start asking questions that will uh, at least point us in the direction of more uh, beneficial results. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited for this artist revenue stream uh, project and, and the survey that that'll go up online. And it's just it just kind of baffles me that that everything up to this point really, or, or so much has been based on hearsay, and, and right. here we're actually going to have some stats. And to tell you the truth, you know, as, you know, it will probably produce more questions because you could, you will, I, I don't have the answers in front of me, but, you know, you have to be prepared at least to get information that will, uh, you know, allow you to reach certain conclusions. And maybe, you know, maybe we decide that, hey, um, you know, the, this ship has sailed and we need to focus our energies over here. Again, um, we feel for folks in the independent music community, like the, the, you know, our friends at the indie labels and stuff, about the difficulty in adapting to this new marketplace. Some have been really successful. Uh, but at the end of the day, what matters most to my organization, at least, and, and, and all of our musician friends, is how is this actually affecting the working artists out there? How are these policies impacting their ability to make a living? You've been listening to, uh, that was Casey Ray Hunter from the Future of Music Coalition, a nonprofit working to ensure diverse musical culture. They're also, you know, keeping, uh, you know, keeping in mind the importance of outlets like WFMU and fans uh, being able to access music that they want and discover new music. Uh, we're also talking with Sherwin Sai from Public Knowledge, another uh, great positive force down in Washington, D.C., lobbying for our rights in the emerging digital culture. And we're talking about the Center for Copyright Information, uh, this new agreement between the major entertainment industry forces and the internet service providers um, to send out copyright alerts and monitor peer-to-peer networks. And let's go ahead and continue with this interview. What is maybe the the best and worst case scenario because this this agreement it's just a kind of a memorandum of understanding it's kind of like hey we we are going to be cooperating now um and so much is left vague uh you know there's this possibility that that uh one of the mitigation measures will be the disruption of internet access it's not really clear to me what happens if if you do reach that highest mitigation measure level if you're just on the blacklist forever what what is what is the best and worst case scenario? Well, I'll jump I'll jump in real quick. I think the best case scenario would be, you know, your your roommate like uh, downloads you know Blades of Glory uh, illegally on your ISP connection, and you go yell at him and tell him to knock it off, and he does, and somehow that staunches the flow of unauthorized file sharing online, and everyone's happy and can make a living. The worst case scenario is that it doesn't have any effect at all. And it's just kind of a waste of everyone's time. I'm not particularly, personally, worried that this is going to lead to folks getting booted off the Internet. I mean, the mitigation measures, um, you know, they, they might be 
they might be kind of questionable. The arbitration stuff might be questionable, particularly having to pay something like 35 bucks for the right to protest your innocence. But let's see what actually happens. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, when, when the three strikes kind of conversations were happening in Europe and the policies were drafted, a lot of us had some very real concerns about this kind of thing being ported over to America whole cloth because we didn't want to, you know, uh, disenfranchise people by kicking them off the most important communications platform in human history. <laughs> You know, just to protect, uh, you know, uh, the, a business model, let's face it. Um, but on the other hand, um, you know, if it, if it turns out that this works gangbusters and folks just kind of dis- realize through education or, or other means that there are a ton of legitimate legal music sites and services out there that will provide music at a pretty insanely low cost and new ones coming every day with like the subscription services and so on and so forth, you know, then that's fine. And, and perhaps that will create a little bit more confidence and a, and a shelf to start, you know, actually uh, getting back to the job that we should be doing, which is coming up with great ways for folks to hear music and, and contribute to, uh, you know, the music economies. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the, the potential good uh, that comes out of this is that you're, is that you wouldn't have necessarily a, a, a scolding, that you, it would actually be educational. And I think that that's a, a, a fine line. Uh, but in the, the long term, uh, a longer term potential harm that I think we need to be to watch out for is to make sure that the process by which people get reported to this system uh, stays rigorous and valid and that you're not getting um, frivolous uh, claims sent in. Even if it's not something as severe as getting kicked off the system, uh, we want to make sure that it is actually people who are infringing that are getting, uh, that are getting whacked by this, that are getting us that slap on the wrist. You know, I think we, want, we need to recognize that internet connections aren't a luxury. It's not, it, it is, you know, something that people primarily use uh, a lot of the time as, as entertainment or a conduit to entertainment, but it's not, that's not its sole function, and that's not its most important function. Beyond that, there's the ability to participate in, a, in, in civic life, yeah. to do your taxes, you know, register to vote, uh, and just engage in civic discourse, you know, and I think it's too easy for people to dismiss the importance of the internet. When they say, "Oh, it's people posting about their cats on Facebook," well, um, they're also po- uh, posting about uh, political debate on Facebook at the same time. Yeah, and okay. this is, you know, the access to internet as a cause of both both public knowledge and future music coalition um, really lobbying hard for in Washington D.C. I, I did want to, you know, we we mentioned the three strikes. Basically, instead of the tiered system that that is going to happen here in the states. There's a possibility of, of three strikes in, in other countries that's come up with a third strike. You, you do lose access to the Internet. Um, and, I mean, is that a possibility that, that the government will intervene like, like it's sort of trying to do in, in, uh, in France with Hadapi, the government agency, and the, the Digital Economy Act in the U.K.? You know, you know, I think that, I think it's um, pretty doubtful that the that the U.S. would try and do something uh, would would follow that sort of example. I think th- this agreement helps to to show that there is another way of doing this uh, without the government getting involved. We actually have a, a set of laws uh, regarding uh, the liability of internet service providers, and they're not uh, fully free from all responsibility. I mean, they have to abide by certain. Uh, procedures and principles in order to qualify for the safe harbors they do have under U.S. law. And that's, that's something that was 
worked out in the Digital Millennium Copyright Act after, after months and months, years of debate. And, you know, the, the contrast between this agreement and what, what they're doing in France, for example, I think has less to do with, the, certainly less to do with the number of strikes uh, that, that it takes to, to, to get uh, a mitigation measure or some sort of penalty. It has a lot more to do with uh, your, uh, what, what that penalty is how that affects your ability to connect, uh, and also uh, what, your, what your opportunities are to contest that. Uh, this being sort of a, a private process, you can, you know, there's a, an appeals process built into this private process, but beyond that, you can always uh, go to court, which, you know, it will be more expensive and perhaps less efficient, but it is uh, a, a sort of a, a step beyond uh, you can step outside of the the confines of this agreement uh, to assert your legal rights. That would that would be very interesting. <laughs> like anything else, you know, it's a balance that needs to be struck. I, I I would agree with Sherwin that it's very unlikely that the U.S. government would, you know, um, would uh, do something like Hadopi. Um, I just got to throw in a plug. I think at our at our Future of Music um, Policy Summit, which takes place in Georgetown in D.C. I think this year, October 3 to 4, it's always a great time. You know, tons of musicians and academics and technologists and industry folks come together and yell at each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we're, we're trying to get somebody, uh, an expert, to come and talk about the effectiveness of the Hadopi law and some of the European experiments in graduated response. And then, after, put it into context with, you know, what the, you know, the United States enforcement policies, private and public, um, are shaping out to be. So I think it's going to be really interesting because at the end of the day, you want to look at what the impact is uh, on the market, you know, the pirate market or whatever you want to call it. It's like, you know, you see the, the worry about some of the U.S. policy initiatives that the government is actually pushing for is that they don't know the industries that well, and sometimes they might come in with like a, you know, with like a, a, a hammer when they might need a precision laser or something. Um, and it's then there's also you know the idea of effectiveness and we've all seen I don't want to make this this perfect analogy but we've seen the war on drugs and we've seen the pictures of the law enforcement officials standing there with the AK-47s and black tar heroin all beaming proudly but what effect does this stuff have on the actual uh, marketplace they're trying to you know disrupt and I think that any well any policy however well intentioned has to have some sort of metric to determine effectiveness I've talked to folks in both the content industries and in, in the public policy space who believe that you know a lot of what's happening here, like, say, this ISP agreement, is not about crushing or eliminating piracy. It's about uh, disincentivizing people from unauthorized file sharing. So if that works and it doesn't screw anything else up, that's awesome. If, it, if it's a slippery slope and we end up in a place we don't want to be, well, that's why you've got guys like me and Sherwin in Washington fretting over this stuff, uh, you know, 24 hours a day. Yeah. You know, in the, in the past on this program, I spoke with uh, Paul Boutin from... Uh he had this great article in Wired called The Age of Music Piracy is Officially Over uh, back in December where, um, you know, basically all, all of the reasons that, that people kind of flocked to Napster when that first appeared and um, all the reasons that people had for d- pirating music in, instead of purchasing, you know, a file with DRM or a low-quality file uh, were, were no longer valid. Um, and we'll see if, if this... Uh, further step of dis- disincentivizing uh, 
has any effect or if it if the pirates continue to kind of find their own channels and and stay one step ahead of of the the uh business side of of the music industry well it's uh it's an interesting time and I, I really appreciate both of you taking the time to to help kind of uh, help us understand what exactly is going on, how it will affect musicians, and how it will affect really everybody who uses the internet, and hopefully we'll be able to continue using the internet. Absolutely. So, so yeah, Sherwin, Sherwin from uh, Public Knowledge, and Casey from Future Music Coalition. I just wanted to echo something that Casey said, and it sure, really Sherwin. is about uh, what that balance is. I mean, anytime you see a, a new policy proposal for this sort of thing, uh, the a lot of the times the justification here for it is something must be done. And when something must be done, it's very careful to, it's very important that you look carefully at what that something is. And in this case, I think there's a lot of potential for it doing some good and, and uh, not, a, uh, not a, and there's a good chance that it does no harm. Uh, I think the same isn't always true uh, for other proposals and uh, that's, that's always uh, something you want to look out for.
and you've been listening to the sounds of Neep here on WFMU. Pantalasa. I think maybe an homage to Miles Davis. From the Sky Motion album. Uh, newly reissued. It's a free download courtesy of the Acoustronica label. Out of Italy and Neep. N-H-E-A-P is uh, the curator for that label. Label manager. They recently joined the Free Music Archive up at freemusicarchive.org with uh, some great electronic and acoustic sounds, including a great EP by Claudio Nunez, Argentinian classical guitarist. I picked out some of my favorite tracks up at the link that you can follow if you're listening online at wfmu.org I've got the playlist uh, Metal Morphosis before that some super intense prog metal We are continuing to listen to the Neep in the background, by the way. Metamorphosis from Poland. From their three-song EP, Biabska Duzsi, we heard the opening track. No, we heard the closing track, sorry. Balada Bezbozna. Assassins 88 before that from Australia. This is a track called Scanners that we we heard up on the Free Music Archive via the New Weird Australia series, their Sound of Young Canberra compilation. And now Assassins 88 is seeing their Caneda EP released by the great label Dream Damage. You can check that out as well. I think the song's been remastered for the EP. Leuser before that. Starting off that set of music with Dracula's Chauffeur Once More. Dracula's Chauffeur Once More. From their second album, Concrete Light, released by Hira Giscos. Ger are a five-piece from Madrid, Spain. And you can download two full albums from them from the Free Music Archive. Great, great stuff. They've played shows, I believe, with the likes of Moon Duo and, uh, you know, hitting all the right spots in their kraut rock space psychedelic universe exploration. And before that, we were talking about the Center for Copyright Information. copyright alert system with Sherwin Sai from Public Knowledge and Casey Ray Hunter from Future of Music Coalition another big big thanks to the two of them for joining and helping helping uh, just kind of fill us in on what's going on because these things happen 
suddenly you get a letter in the mail, your roommate's been downloading uh, the movie Black Swan. Next thing you know, you're, uh, well, fortunately it sounds like it's not actually quite as bad as it could be. And I gotta say, it's pretty comforting to hear from Casey and Sherwin. Reassuring, and uh, hopefully this is a good thing for music. And for people who like music and want to support a healthy environment for music. For people who have free music to share, there are outlets like the Free Music Archive. This has been the Gray Area Podcast, an excerpt of my weekly radio show on WFMU called Talks Cheap, where we play music from the Free Music Archive over at freemusicarchive.org. And uh, another special thanks to Casey Ray Hunter from Future Music Coalition and Sherwin Sai from Public Knowledge. More from both of those great organizations at futureofmusic.org and publicknowledge.org. And you can check out the playlist to this program at wfmu.org slash playlists slash GA. We've got links to download all the tracks that we heard. Thanks for listening. Be safe out there on the internet. And I'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you.